It's more important to have one of the systems really working rather than fighting over perfect designs. Last month, the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, or the COP26 as it was commonly referred to, was held in Glasgow. The two-week event had one clear mission, uniting the world to tackle climate change. This year's COP26, which stands for Conference of the Parties, came at a particularly important impasse. This past year, forest fires raged, floods swept away entire communities, and world weather records were constantly being shattered. Climate change is here. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and in today's episode of Women in Economics, I want to know how economics can help us fight it. COP26 outlined four specific goals for the event. One, to secure the 2030 emission reductions target to reach net zero by 2050 and keep the 1.5 degrees limit within reach. Two, to enable and encourage countries to adapt to protect communities and natural habitats. Three, to mobilize finance, holding countries and international financial institutions accountable for the $100 billion promises made. And four, to work together to deliver, focusing on collaborative approaches both between countries, but also within countries to better align their governments, businesses, and citizens. Historically, these global initiatives have not always proven successful. Good intentions are always present, but tactical plans and accountability once everyone returns home are not. Today, I'll be speaking with Beatrice Vero Di Mauro. She is the president for Center of Economic Policy Research, or CEPR, which deems her responsible for CEPR's research programs, policy outreach, and the coordination of funding. Vero Di Mauro has held many prestigious positions during her career, including at the International Monetary Fund, Harvard University, the National Bureau of Economic Research, and the United Nations University in Tokyo. More recently, she's written about carbon taxation and inflation and how central banks should adapt their strategies to better support green policies. I'd like to begin today by asking you a big, broad question. How important is economics when it comes to fighting climate change? It's extremely important, maybe because I'm an economist and biased, but I would say it's about half of the solution. And the way I'm thinking about this is in terms of this green premium. Is it more costly in today's technology to do a certain activity, to produce a certain number of watts of energy with a zero emission or a very low emission source versus the cheapest that we have right now. So if you call that the green premium, the green premium can be closed from two sides. The top side is technology, improving of technology, improving of scale. And the other half of the story is technological progress, which is why the scientists and the engineers are absolutely crucial to actually achieve the the goal. The other side, however, is economics because the green premium right now means that the price is too low for the production of energy with fossil fuels, which is the cheapest way of doing it. 
increasing that price, so we're back to you know, carbon taxes, carbon pricing. The European system is actually not so much around taxes, but around cap and trade. Anything you can do in order to increase the price of carbon towards the social cost is going to help close that gap too, right? So we need both. We need the economic tools and we need technology. Cap and trade versus carbon pricing. In your opinion, as an economist, is one better or more effective than the other? Carbon tax, you add a certain amount. It's a price-based mechanism to the price of the energy source. The certain amount should be equivalent to the external effect, to the size of this external effect that is not being internalized. So it's basically the market failure is internalized through a right pricing of the activity that is causing a uh, negative external effect. You can achieve the same thing by limiting the amount of negative activity, concretely by saying how much emissions you are allowed to emit. So that would be the cap part. The second part of that could be to say, okay, but we assign these uh, licenses for how much you can emit and they can be traded among companies, which has the advantage that if a company has underestimated or overestimated its possibilities to limit its emissions or the costs of that, then through trading, they can either buy or sell these permits. The discussion around cap and trade versus carbon tax is one of the absolute mainstays of environmental economics, but it may be less important than it's sometimes made to be, because whatever system you employ, it's now very clear that the goal is to not exceed a certain budget over a long time. Whether you do this through cap and trade or through carbon taxing, in my view, is less important There may also be differences in how easy they are to implement and to explain from a policy point of view. But again, it's more important to have one of the systems really working rather than fighting over perfect designs. Speaking of the perfect designs, there's often an argument made that a carbon tax would lead to higher inflation. You've researched the interplay between this type of taxation and inflation. But before we get into your findings, what led you to explore this as a research topic? The European Central Bank was embarking on its own strategy review and the question how green monetary policy, but also more generally climate change would affect monetary policy in future was for the ECB right up there with one of the key questions that they were asking. The second reason that I got interested in this topic is that I just realized that there was so little. So I asked I, I asked the research assistant to say, can you put together the literature on how carbon taxes have affected inflation? And he came back with lots and lots of studies that show carbon taxes effects on growth, but very, very little on inflation. So that seemed like there was a gap. We started looking in more detail at how existing carbon taxes that have been implemented over the last 30 years have affected inflation rates in the countries where they were implemented. Turns out that more carbon taxes exist already than you would think. And in particular, in Canada, the British Columbia one is a very, very uh, prominent example 
of a carbon tax that has been studied extensively, but again, not focusing so much or at all on the aggregate price effects on inflation, but rather on income effects and on growth effects. When you're studying carbon taxes, people were asking, are they having an effect on emissions? So the first thing to note is that the answer to that question was yes. Carbon taxes are actually reducing emissions, but what are they doing to inflation? That was our starting point. And that leads me to my next question. If carbon taxes are reducing emissions, are they also leading to higher inflation rates? The answer is somewhat surprisingly no. In the experience of the historical carbon taxes that have been implemented, they have not been inflationary on average, and in some cases, or rather, you could say, rather slightly deflationary. And when you say deflationary... It means the aggregate price level is uh, falling. You implement a carbon tax, and in some cases, it's quite a substantial one on a part of energy, and those prices actually do increase. So how could the average price index be falling although I have to say it's a slight fall. But still, what this has to mean is that there are other prices that decline as energy prices increase. So it's relative prices, as we call it, that are adjusting rather than the overall aggregate price level. And this, of course, immediately begs the question of why and suggests that monetary policies reaction or non-reaction in the past may have a role to play. Because if you imagine that the average price level is not moving or moving slightly down, and the central bank is focusing solely on that, then such a supply side effect like the increase in the energy prices may have to translate into declining prices in other goods. The, The next question is why or what is the mechanism that this is happening through And for the case of British Columbia, we could look at more detail at household income. You would maybe expect that the poorest households are most affected by such an increase in the energy prices. But it turns out that the ones that react strongest are the richest. The British Columbian carbon tax is actually designed in a way that it redistributes towards the poorer households. So that is compatible, at least, with that specific design of the British Columbian um, carbon tax that has a strong redistributive uh, um, element in it. Is there any reason to suspect that other countries wouldn't also experience these deflationary effects based on either their geography or their politics? We will not say that carbon taxes or carbon pricing will always be deflationary or cannot have an effect on inflation. It will depend a lot on the reaction of monetary policy, in fact. And this is what I explored together with other co-authors in another paper in which we model different responses of monetary policy to a rather substantive increase in carbon tax. The results there is that you can get either deflation or inflation depending on how monetary policy reacts. The reading of this joint research agenda is more alerting the policymakers and central banks in in particular 
to the fact that it's not a foregone conclusion that there will be higher inflation from higher energy prices, but rather that it will take a lot of careful thinking and adjusting their strategies to deal with these kind of relative price changes that need to happen. Speaking of policymakers and central banks, what kind of indicators are being evaluated by central banks to measure climate risk? How abstract is it for them to tie climate change to monetary policies? It's no longer abstract. It's uh, real and it's here. We see it already in the fact that there are increasing number of severe weather events and If you talk to insurance companies, that's exactly their business, modeling this kind of disruptions and dealing with them and pricing them. The question of how climate affects a portfolio of not only a central bank, but of the banking system or more generally the financial system requires a lot of data and modeling. Physical climate risk, which is definitely increasing, can be very localized and will have very, very different consequences across the globe. But then there is also the second part that needs to be priced and understood, and that's transition risk. Transition relates to transiting towards a net zero carbon economy. And in that transit, some of the assets we call them brown assets rather than green ones, the ones that are related to essentially burning fossil fuels, will no longer have the price that they have today. The risk um, that this kind of climate transition will affect large parts of currently brown assets is also something that is already starting to materialize. It's complex, yes, but it's no longer an abstract and theoretic possibility, but rather something that supervisors, um, bankers, asset managers, everybody needs to have essentially a climate model. And how much should climate risk factor into the central bank's monetary policy operations? I think it has been bigger in the discussion than it deserves. There has been a debate which was very, very quickly polarized. Oh my God, central banks should not get into this at all. And then the other side saying going to net zero is one of the prime goals of European institutions and shouldn't the ECB be part of that. We are quickly converging to a much more rational way of talking about this from a purely defensive motive Central banks' assets also have to reflect climate risk. They also need to know that they are not running large physical transition or transition risks through their purchases. And then the added dimension is whether central banks should also participate in the broader goal of, for instance, the creation of new markets, whether central banks start tilting their purchases more towards green or they don't, is definitely not going to be the main contribution to solving the climate problem. But central banks could be a little part of the contribution. And it is more ultimately through their role as regulators of the financial system that they are having a large-scale impact and not so much through their asset purchases. The European Central Bank, the ECB, has released their action plan as it relates to climate change. Could you summarize the approach they've laid out? 
The first part of that action plan is completely uncontroversial and totally necessary, but also quite complicated because it gets back into the question, how do we model climate risk at the macro level? At the macro level, climate risk will need to be integrated into macro models, which is not the case at the moment. So that is a task that is not only for the ECB, but for in principle, every uh, central bank, but the ECB is a little bit ahead of the game here and has put this as part of its path towards integrating better climate risk into its monetary policy. The second has to do with the monetary policy operations. On the one hand, the green risk, climate risk, but also the possibility to promote green assets through its different instruments, not only purchases, but also collateral policies, The ECB has a detailed roadmap in the sense that it says we are going to study these different ways of implementing and designing monetary policy operations with regard to their best design, most effective design, given that there are always several goals and achieving all goals simultaneously is normally not possible. So studying the trade-offs that occur if you choose a certain type of implementation for, say, collateral policies. You and your co-authors have written a great review of the ECB strategy, which we will link in the sources for this episode if anyone wants to dive deeper. Let's move away from the institutional level for a moment here. Do you think that the new wave of activism surrounding climate change Things like Fridays for Future and other marches have made an impact? Definitely in Europe, the general public opinion has shifted substantially over the last years. And the very public pronunciations and demonstrations of youth, in my view, have a part in that. I know many families where this discussion takes place around the dinner table between the young and the older generations. But Europe and even the US ultimately are not enough in order to solve the problem, as we know, since most of the investment in order to get to net zero will have to be in Asia. And the biggest chunk, of course, in China So my answer is yes, I think the public opinion matters. The fact that more and more leaders are very publicly embracing the talk of climate change is partly due to that. There is a demand for green policies. Do you think the climate crisis could truly be addressed if one mega country like China or the US doesn't make significant changes? In the distribution across the world, It's very clear that the richest in the world have already the biggest burden that they have sent into the atmosphere. So it's clear that this huge global distribution problem that we are ultimately talking about needs addressing and it cannot be addressed within countries only. A global tax on carbon or some kind of mechanism that would deal with carbon pricing is the preferred economic strategy. It has been amazing, albeit delayed, to see so much collective action surrounding climate change. Why did it take us so long to get here? And how can we stay focused on achieving these goals? I have been teaching sustainable finance and impact investment. And it's very clear 
as an economist that you really, really depend on the scientists. It took the world many years to start listening to scientists and to start understanding what they have been saying. But I think by now the IPCC is the accepted general guideline on how to think about what is ahead of us. What is not, in my view, sufficiently understood yet, despite all the discussions that are taking place there and a lot of headlines and leaders really embracing the whole talk about climate change, what I think really helps to understand the urgency of this particular issue is three numbers. And they are all extracted directly from the IPCC table, which shows what is the remaining budget that the whole world has in terms of how much CO2 can be emitted into the atmosphere for the next many hundred years to still stick to the 1.5 degrees. And the numbers are the following. The carbon budget remaining is 300 gigatons. And you have to put this into a relationship to all the emissions that have taken place since the pre-industrial times. And those are 2,390 gigatons. And the Yearly CO2 emissions at the moment are about 40. So 4,300 and 2,000, we have to keep an eye out because what they're telling us is if we continue with the 40, then we will have used up the 300 that are remaining in less than a decade. Having those numbers, the 40, 300, 2,000, so top of mind, has that impacted your own personal behavior or pushed you towards a more sustainable lifestyle? It's a work in progress, I would say. We have been in our family uh, aware of the problems of eating too much meat and what that causes. And interestingly enough, this is already part of the textbooks that my son was studying when he was 14 years old. And that definitely had not been part of the textbooks that I had in school. We adjusted, we are driving electric car and we are clearly more aware. We are looking at offsetting. But what I have only recently started to realize is that it's all about tons. It's the absolute value of anything you do Anything a firm does, anything a sustainable finance uh, fund does, ultimately needs to be measured in the number of tons that are not emitted. It's not about good intentions and, you know, the number of articles you write. (laughs) It's tons. Um, How many tons? What is the carbon footprint? Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS.
This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. 